Hello and welcome to Useful Idiots. I'm Katie Halper. And I'm Aaron Maté. And we have a great show this week featuring Ben Smith of Semaphore. He has a new book called Traffic. It's all about uh, the rise and fall of digital media. And it's a fun conversation. Yeah, and he, of course, was at BuzzFeed News, and he was at the New York Times, so he has lots of things to say about media and the media landscape. And for you, Katie, it's kind of a, it's kind of a trip down memory lane. It is. I get a little nostalgic, kind yeah. of. Uh, but also, we have a little mini debate between Aaron and Ben, uh, respectful, not too many sparks, but good, a good, healthy discussion, democratic discussion, and also Ben talks a little bit about what he describes as the cluster F-U-C-K at the New York Times over a podcast called Caliphate. So you can Mm -hmm. catch that full interview as well as, of course, our Thursday throwdown segment, which is when we go over uh, midweek media madness and react to clips. Uh, You can catch all of that at usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com. If you like media gossip and gab, which I have to admit, I kind of do. I have a soft spot for it. You will like this this interview. Yeah. It's a fun one. Um, all righty. Usefulitis.substack.com, as Katie said. And let's get to our four basic food groups. And just a refresher in case you're new to the show, the four basic food groups are something that Matt Taibbi actually came up with. He had a friend, his dad's friend in, in the news media business, because, of course, Matt Taibbi's dad was a reporter. So uh, his dad's friend said to him once, all news can be divided into four basic food groups of stories. Uh, Democrats suck, Republicans suck. Isn't that weird and isn't that terrible? So that's the origin story. So, Aaron, what do we have for Democrats suck? For Democrats suck, we are going to go back to an old favorite, which was the Democratic obsession for years and years and years with the conspiracy theory that Trump was a Russian agent and Robert Mueller was going to prove it. Well, we all know that that collapsed, but the fallout continues and Now we have a new report from John Durham, who was a special prosecutor appointed under Trump to look at how this whole Russia thing came about and to scrutinize the conduct of intelligence officials. And guess what, everybody? Uh, He concluded that this whole thing was basically a scam and should never have been investigated in the first place. And here, surprisingly, I think, is Jake Tapper of CNN grappling with that outcome. And Jake Tapper, of course, being someone who pushed that conspiracy theory and, you know, raised expectations that it would pan out. So here's Jake Tapper grappling with Durham's conclusion. Report is now here. It has dropped and it might not have produced everything of what some Republicans hoped for. It, it is regardless devastating to the FBI and to a degree it does exonerate Donald Trump. Let's bring in CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. Evan, what exactly did Durham find in this report? Well, Jake, the uh, the bottom line finding from uh, John Durham's four year investigation is that the FBI moved very quickly to investigate these allegations of connections of collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, and that they did so by ignoring a, a lot of uh, evidence that would have led them to drop that altogether. He's saying that uh, they may have had uh, reason to uh, open a preliminary investigation, an assessment. Perhaps these are very, very low-level investigations. But certainly what he finds is that there wasn't enough there uh, to, to, uh, to, to support the FBI's decision to open a full-blown investigation of, this, uh, of, of the Trump-Russia ties back in 2016. So congrats to CNN for catching up uh, to what I've been saying for the last, I don't know, six years. Uh, and uh, better late than never. But of course, some people are not, are not happy with CNN coming around to reality, uh, pointing out that 
this was just been determined that there was no basis to begin this whole Trump-Russia investigation to begin with. Uh, here is, for example, is Keith Olbermann, uh, the former anchor on MSNBC. He is not happy with Jake Tapper. Uh-oh. And here he is, CNN's new scandal. Jake Tapper says the Durham report is devastating to the FBI. It isn't. Not even close. No charges, just partisan conclusions. And Tapper of the new non-journalistic Chris-like CNN is propagandizing. Jake Tapper needs to resign. Wow. So Keith Olbermann is not taking this very well. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, Keith. Uh, You've lost one person from the Blue and On column in media. There's still plenty more. Don't worry. But um, I say, you know, look, it's hard for me to credit Jake Tapper for anything because I... Not a big fan, but uh, good for him for at least no, you acknowledging gotta reality there. You, you yeah. got to give credit where credit's due if you want to have credibility, in my opinion. I don't think my credibility resides on whether or not I give Jake Tapper credit. But, uh, hey, uh, fair. I, I will nonetheless say. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it just increases one's credibility when you make uh, when you hand it to someone who you don't usually like to hand it to. Uh, if anybody out there doesn't want to give Jake Tapper any props, I won't hold it against you. Uh, but right, Katie fine. has a higher standard, and I respect I have it. A standard, I do. Yeah, I, I, do. I respect it, and I do. I do tip my hat to Jake Tapper there for acknowledging the truth. Too bad it came. I don't know, five years too late, six years too late, because this was obvious from the start uh, that this whole thing was a scam. It was baseless. But hey, honestly, it's good to see some reality sinking in. You know what they should have done? Jake Tapper should have just watched your collusion interview with collusion author Luke Harding, where you asked for proof of collusion and he had to hang up on you. Yes, that was back in December 2017. And uh, I mean, to toot my own horn, I have always felt that if more people had seen that interview, they might have realized that there wasn't much to there wasn't anything to this whole Trump Russia thing. And it could have saved a lot of people a lot of time and effort because, yes, Luke Harding who was very close with Christopher Steele, who played a major role in all this, wrote a book called Collusion. And I interviewed him. And it's a really funny interview because Luke Harding is zero evidence whatsoever. And it just gets progressively more awkward as Luke Harding is trying to scramble to defend something he can't, which is that this notion that there was collusion between Trump and Russia. So for Republican suck, we have a uh, some news out of Florida. Ron DeSantis has just passed a bill banning... Uh, diversity programs, and certain courses uh, like gender studies at Florida public universities. So let's listen to what Ron DeSantis has to say. You know, some of these niche subjects like critical race theory, other types of DEI infused uh, courses and majors, um, Florida's getting out of that game. Um, If you want to do things like uh, gender ideology, uh, go to Berkeley, go to some of these other places. That's fine. It's fine. And there's nothing, if that's what you want to do, there's, there's nothing wrong with that uh, per se. But for us, with our tax dollars, we want to focus on the classical mission of what a university is supposed to be. Uh, we don't want to be diverted into a lot of these niche subjects that are heavily politicized. Uh, we want to focus on the basis. And I think what you've seen as these types of majors and course, first of all, how how employable are you with some of these majors? I mean, really? So uh, this is a great clip of DeSantis doing what DeSantis loves to do, which is kind of crying about woke ideology and at the same time engaging in the kind of censorship, basically, or government control that he claims to dislike. He's always talking about we don't want to be controlled by the government. 
you know, the government shouldn't be making decisions for people. He's kind of a libertarian framing of politics. And then what is he doing? He's actually going in as a governor and deciding what can and cannot be taught at schools, which is just so funny because it's exactly the thing that they accuse leftists of doing indoctrination. Absolutely. It's like, are they acting out of fantasy where they're really the people they constantly claim to be against? I don't know. It's right. a, it's a, it's a strange dynamic. I mean, that's very common in politics. But uh, yeah, Ron certainly seems to be taking it to a new level. Yeah, it's really weird. I don't know what happened to him that triggered him about <laughs> woke ideology. Was there a DEI training that just went on way too long, like an interminable DEI training that that made him so sensitive about all this? Mm-hmm. I don't know. But I think you should be able to, uh, if you care about free speech, you should be able to tolerate courses being taught, whether or not you'd personally like to take them. That's my that's my hot take, and I'm sticking I'm, to it. I'm with it. Yeah. What do we got for Isn't That Weird? So for Isn't That Weird, there's been a, a weird conspiracy theory circulating around the recent uh, coronation in uh, Britain with Charles becoming the new king and Meghan Markle, you know, who uh, notoriously has been sort of on the outs with the royal family, didn't attend. I think Harry did though, right? But Meghan Markle officially did not attend, or did she? Because there's a theory that she really attended in disguise. This man is not Meghan Markle. No matter what you've read on the internet, the conspiracy theorists started racing online after last Saturday's coronation of King Charles. Now, the idea behind it, that the Duchess of Sussex had donned a shaggy wig, glasses, and a big and impressive fake mustache to attend the ceremony incognito. People tweeted, almost had me fooled, and you're not fooling us. That's not Meghan Markle. It's Sir Carl Jenkins, a very famous Welsh composer who was knighted by Queen Elizabeth. I don't know. I see a real striking resemblance there. Me too. In fact, which <laughs> one's on too. the right? Which one, who's wearing the hat? Is that the Welsh composer or is that Markle? It's true. It's tough to say. I don't know. The, I think the jury's still out. And he joins us right now. Um, Sir Carl Jenkins, thanks Apparently, so much for joining us. Them. Look, I'm going to be honest. I, I watched your TikTok video. That seems like something Meghan Markle would say if she was trying to confuse people and stay in disguise. Can you confirm? Damn, Katie, that's kind of embarrassing for us because the CNN guy is doing our bit. Doing our bit before we had seen the bit. That's true. We had I not seen this before. I don't know if that's better or worse. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like now we kind of have that, have that on our face because we're trying to be funny, but yet the CNN guy is doing the same thing we're doing. You know, so. But our delivery was so much better. <laughs> yeah. That was, in fact, you, sir. Yeah, it was I. Yes, I was there. This person. Um it would have been impossible for anyone to get into that into the Abbey because of the security. You had to present two photo IDs, a utility bill with an address on. No one could have got through that. You know what the problem is? It's those glasses. Those glasses are so disguisey. It's like right. and the mustache too. It you know, it just looks like those glasses, especially, are something someone would wear if they were wearing a disguise. Right, you know? and the mustache. And I I wonder if he's wearing a wig. Which, you know, you're allowed to do that. I'm just saying it may it may be a little make it that much easier for people to accuse you of being uh, in costume. Right. All right. I'm convinced that this was not Meghan Markle, but I don't fault anybody for thinking otherwise because. Yeah, it's understandable. The potential wig, the glasses. I mean, come on. Well, also, to be fair, I mean, we we ourselves at Useful Idiots covered that story about Nicholas Ella Haverdian, mm-hmm. who went in. uh himself wore a costume to try to escape uh, justice 
and he fled to Scotland. And we showed that video. Uh, people say that's not. Let me try to stand up. Let me try to stand up. Exactly. Exactly. I am not Andrea. I am not Nicholas Alamedi, and I do not know how to make this clearer. Oh, Andrea, no, that's, that's a low blow. That's a right low blow. So, to be fair, we're just helping people be more on guard. Uh, about and more skeptical about people's real identities. So maybe we're contributing to this. Yeah. So he, he's the accused rapist who then uh, fled, and then he put on a British accent, and he claimed that tattoos he had that matched the tattoos of uh, the accused rapist were actually they were added to him while he was undergoing some kind of surgical procedure. He, had well, he a whole, was recovering he had a in the hospital. He was hospitalized. Right, yeah. 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 I mean, he had a great story. Yeah. Um, great story. Yeah, and 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 also he was in the UK. So there's something about the UK and disguises. It's it's yeah. a, a place of mystery. It is a place of mystery. Yeah, I yeah. mean, and they're really into costumes. Just look at Prince Charles, King Charles. There we go. Look at how there ridiculous his costume was. Yeah, so there you have it. <laughs> All right. So for isn't that terrible? We have a story. Uh, let's just go to the videotape. Really, there's no words for it. Better better to show the video. We're in Burnsville, Perton and Cliff by Caribou. I was waiting in line, getting my daily coffee. Hi, thank you for stopping at Gardevoir. I was in the drive-thru. I was like the sixth car. There's always a bunch of cars here. And all of a sudden, brown dropped onto my vehicle. It was like it rained brown for a second. Bloom, like that. I got out and I went to the car for me and I was like, what just happened to us? And he was like, I have no idea. Okay, what can I get for you today? I was like looking around, like who threw it at us? But it was very high. Like it came straight down. It hit on my roof, on my hood. It was all the way down my side. My car and the car in front of me was fully covered. Something landed on my mom's car. Also, my child was with me, so I'm glad the windows weren't open. It stinked. You could tell that it was, you know. It was poop. So I looked around. I didn't see any birds or anything. The odor was so strong that the woman who was handing me my coffee noted how much it smelled. I mean, my cat had something similar to it this morning. So I've had a lot today with the poop. This is a residential area, but we are in a flight path. I don't know why that would happen here. Thank you. I have my AMP license. I went to school to be an aircraft mechanic. And I didn't know that there was even a way to release it mid-flight. So that's why I'm a little confused. I'm going to look into it. Have a good day. I applaud you that you still got your coffee. <laughs> It's going to take a lot to stand between me and my coffee. <laughs> so it's half horror story, half mystery. They don't know where the poop came from, but I do appreciate her her hypothesis that it could have been dropped by an airplane. And that has happened before. Uh, airplanes drop things from the airplane. And in, I think there have been cases of poop. I think we, I covered this with Taibi, but there have definitely been weird things that they've dropped, historically speaking. So it's not without outside the realm of possibility. Did you and Taibi win any uh, journalistic uh, journalistic prizes when you covered that? I can't remember, remember. honestly. Yeah. We had so, so much. I mean, so many poop scoops that so poop uh, it's hard to, yeah. to keep track. I mean, our yeah. specialty was penis news, penis based news. <laughs> I noticed. Which, I know. Yeah, I know. Aaron's not I as know. fond of, so I try to be an accommodating co-host. But yeah. <laughs> well, that's quite the story. I have to wonder if you're that kid. Is that fun for you, or is it traumatizing? Because Maybe it's a little bit of both because I could see being a kid, it kind of, it'd be funny to have all of a sudden, like, you know, 
poop on your on, on your car like that. That's raining down, kind of raining down. But also kind right. of traumatizing too. <clears throat> yeah, he uh, looked pretty well adjusted though. I like did. that little back and forth, the cross cutting between the mom and the kid. It was very well done. And maybe uh, he'll become a child actor like you, Aaron. Well, who knows? Yes, maybe he has a future. But regardless, yeah. we'll stay on the story, everybody. We promise yeah. to find out. Don't worry. Well, yeah, yeah, we will get to the bottom of this. Yeah. Don't you and, worry. Uh, any future uh, journalistic uh, awards, just take note that we'll be on this. So yeah, yeah. be sure to prepare you your medals nominate first. Us. Yeah. I know you already got an Izzy, Aaron, but I'm sure you could get another Izzy. And and that was just to you, but they could do a co. I mean, they could do a useful Izzy. Oh, useful idiot Izzy. The stories I really live for. So yeah. We'll keep you posted. All right. For this week's guest, we are joined by Ben Smith. He is the former editor-in-chief of BuzzFeed News and a former media columnist at the New York Times. Uh, Now he is the co-founder of an outlet called Semaphore and the author of a brand new book, Traffic, Genius, Rivalry, and Delusion in the Billion Dollar Race to Go Viral. Ben Smith, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Of course. So your book is really, really good. I really enjoyed it. It's kind of like a page turner, which you don't necessarily expect um, from most books, especially about media, if I'm being honest. But uh, I also really enjoyed it because it was very reminiscent for me. I worked at Jezebel. I used to write at Huffington Post, and it was such a blast from the past, but also very applicable to, to today's media landscape. So wanted to ask you, a kind of topical question, then we'll get more into the book. But what can you tell us about the shutdown of BuzzFeed News, Huffington Post, and uh, Vice? What happened there? Why did these shutdowns just happen? Well, actually, Huffington Post is is, is going strong, basically, which is sort of part of an interesting part of the story. Right. Um, but the, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we're in a moment in the economy and in media where interest rates are up and it looks like it's gonna be a bad year for advertising. So everybody who'd been limping along is really in trouble. And that's, I think that's sort of the most immediate reason that you're seeing these, these, these sort of dramatic moves. But the big picture really is that these companies and their investors who made these huge bets that these new digital platforms would be, you know, not just great ways to reach lots of people, but would, but ultimately really lucrative businesses, you know, those bets, for a bunch of different reasons didn't pay off. And I think, you know, there was this, it's sort of almost hard to remember what, it, like what, what was anybody thinking who was investing hundreds of millions of dollars in digital media in the early 2000s. But actually like, I, you know, one of the things about going back and reporting out this book was you sort of remember what people were thinking. And what they were thinking specifically was that cable in the 80s, you know, there were these new wires in the ground and the people who laid the wires could have said, you know what, we're just going to show commercials and um, public access and it's going to be free. And like, it'll be free for us and maybe it won't be so high quality, but it's free. That's great. But instead they said, you know, we're going to like, we need like live sports and we need news like CNN and Fox and MSNBC and we need um, MTV and VH1. And we're going to like pay a lot for that very expensive content so that people will adapt cable. And so the theory that media companies coming onto this new internet had was, well, this is another new set of pipes like the cables. They're going to wind up paying companies that will become companies like Viacom, MTV and Comedy Central's parent. 
and that'll be BuzzFeed and Vice. And so in the biggest, and that just absolutely did not happen. You can argue about whether it was never going to happen and it was delusional or not. But like that's the sort of big core business reason that these companies are in trouble is because they thought that ultimately they would be making money on Facebook and Twitter and Google on a scale that never happened. What made you want to write this book, by the way? Um, you know, I had like come out of the BuzzFeed after eight years in 20... 20, I guess, and with a sense with a sense already that this era that we'd all lived through in a very disorienting kind of fast moving way was coming to an end. And, and I had been there. I mean, I'd been really like thinking of myself as part of digital media for the second half of it, starting in like 2012, but had been at Politico when it launched, had started a blog in 04, but really was focused on politics. I was a political reporter and had kind of been adjacent to and interested in all the stuff happening in downtown Manhattan in the early aughts. And, but I wasn't like going to the parties. I was just like kind of wishing I was. And so I guess it was sort of an opportunity to go report out all this stuff that I had been aware of, but kind of missed and, and to sort of think like, where did, where did all this start? What's the origin story of this whole kind of insane moment? There's a lot of recalling, uh, like different characters recall certain things. I was wondering what your process was. Like, did you interview Nick Denton? Did you interview Jessica Cohen? Or were these more stories that you heard from others? No, I did. I mean, I had tons and tons of, of reporting. And everybody, you know, it's funny. People are like, I mean, I'm sure it's true of us too. Like people are ha are always like sort of interested and eager and like to talk about their youth. <laughs> like okay. it was fun. Whatever you were doing in your 20s. Like you're usually like, well, those were the good times. Um, and so I think people, even people who had sort of mixed experiences of it and memories of it were pretty open and eager to talk about it. And so now I talked to at great length to almost everybody involved. Nick Denton, who's this very unusual character, didn't talk to me, but did text with me extensively. And okay. also I sh would share a Google Doc with him with lots of questions and he would type the answers. It's funny. Well, let me ask you to talk more about Nick Denton because he's a very important figure in your book. He founds Gawker. And then he becomes the face of this um, scandal where he is sued by Hulk Hogan, uh, backed by billionaire Peter Thiel, uh, after Gawker publishes a sex tape. And that basically leads to the demise of Gawker. Uh, talk to us about you know, how Nick Denton conceptualized uh, media um, and how he you know, went from being so successful to ultimately having to walk away. Aaron, I feel like you should offer a disclaimer that you are a Hungarian Jew. So share that outsider view that Dick Denton has. Is is he a Hungarian Jew? I didn't know that. Oh yeah, he Big is. Yeah. Yeah. His mom, his mom was a, right. a, a Holocaust survivor, a refugee. His dad was a pillar of the British establishment. Right. Um, I just bring that up because yeah, that's but, part of the book. No, but, but he identified very totally, yeah. and he identified very very strongly with his. Um, maternal grandmother who had sort of like fought to survive in 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 kind of Nazi Hungary. No, I think he's such an interesting character, sort of for the reason Aaron says. Like he was very, and I, one of the reasons I focus on him, he's very ideological about media. Like he like there are a lot of people who made or lost money, but there are also some people who kind of like got a glimpse of the future and had these big ideas, often, you know, to their own detriment in a way. But the thing that he saw in the internet was like this opportunity to upend this like very fusty kind of photoshopped American media, partly in the spirit of British media, which was always more savage and more partisan and funnier, and partly in a sort of new digital way. You know, it, it just, that like digital media would say the things that journalists were really saying to each other and sort of reveal the hard truths that the media was keeping from you. And this is, you know, remember, this is the moment right after most of the American media had kind of 
in varying degrees cheer-led the invasion of Iraq. And in the and in a totally other space at Jezebel, where you were, you know, worked like, the, they launched and it, sort of in the same spirit with a uh, ten thousand dollar bounty for some anybody who could find a an un, unretouched photo of one of their models. And sure enough, somebody showed up, like stole a picture from Redbook and showed up with a picture of Faith Hill still with freckles and smile lines. And there was this sense that you would get from Gawker the unretouched version of reality, and that was I think very appealing to people in that moment. But in a way, it's most it had this kind of straight line from there to publishing sex tapes, which was also a thing they did from time to time. You know, at a moment when I think the social consensus hadn't totally settled that that's a loathsome thing to do. And most people didn't have embarrassing photos in their phones they wouldn't want to be revealed by a blog. And I think by the time Peter Thiel, who is on a crusade against them for reasonable, totally different reasons, but you know, conducts this lunatic secret campaign to destroy them. By the time that campaign reaches court in Florida in 2015, the social consensus has sort of settled that publishing sex tapes is an insane thing to do, and that's really what brings them down. And so in some sense, like their ethos, which is we're just going to publish everything, we're going to publish the stuff nobody else would publish in part. In part, nobody else would publish it because, you know, they were sort of soft establishmentarians, but in part they wouldn't publish it because they were afraid of getting sued. That kind of ultimately you know, they're kind of victims of their own ideology to some degree, although also victims of an actual conspiracy. When it comes to, you know, why some of these outlets didn't make it, um, talk to us about how basically Facebook and Google were able to take so much of the of the revenue uh, from advertising. How did that happen? Yeah, and I, yeah, it's a good question. And I do think it's like you people, and I certainly, as somebody who's covered media for a long time, there's a temptation to see the rise and fall of media companies in sort of moral terms, like my enemies are being defeated or my friends or whatever or capitalism is crushing great things. But, you know, the business story is in some ways like more complicated and more boring. But like, basically, there was this bet that display advertising on the internet would be a good business for publishers. But the evolution of ad tech really meant that what you were selling was not proximity to your awesome content or community of people or to or access to a community of people who loved your work and would then, you know, presumably love an advertiser, which is the nature of the ad business, but just access to their eyeballs, which could also be found anywhere else. And gradually Google through a series of acquisitions and then Facebook just sort of build better mousetraps than the publishers have and bigger scale. And so if you're trying to sell sneakers or toilet paper or get people into your local bar they do a better job and the publishers lose and the publishers lose out on that business can you talk about why the internet uh loved obama so much and how they helped ele- uh how internet culture and internet media helped elevate him politically yeah and it's again one of these things where you really have to like put your head back into this lost era but it was just sort of like presumptively true in the early aughts, that, that the internet was basically a progressive space. You know, Huffington Post had, and that new media was progressive. Huffington Post had been launched really explicitly to get to after the um, the re-election of Bush to get a Democrat elected, and then explicitly cheerled Obama through that primary. And the you know the basic reason, which is dumb and obvious, is that the internet was full of young people who are more liberal and old people who are more conservative. We're not really on the internet yet, or they were on like Free Republic. If you remember that site, sort of like old-fashioned bulletin boards, you know, and Facebook in particular, which was sort of, you know, it was launched in what, 04 and maybe 
available to non-college students starting and I feel like 07, although maybe I have those dates slightly wrong. But Facebook is where you went to reach college kids. Like that's what it was for. And so obviously Democrats are the ones having campaign rallies on campuses. Facebook exec goes to work for Obama to help him sort of use the platform. And and in, uh, in 2011, even in 2011, Obama visits Facebook and he doesn't have to say, like, I am visiting Facebook because it is where Democrats are. It's just obvious that that's a progressive space that, because you know, just for the obvious reason that it's full of college kids. It's the same reason you'd, like, visit Madison, Wisconsin. And I think a lot of the folks in that world sort of saw Obama's election as, in some sense, the culmination of this new digital media moment. I remember being at Netroots Nation, which the first Netroots Nation that happened was called Yearly Coast. So before they changed it to Netroots Nation. And... um I remember you could see Hillary. They all came: Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, John Edwards. Yeah, was was John was, and John Kerry? I think too. I definitely remember Hillary. I, was Hillary? I definitely remember. I think Hillary dissed them one year and didn't go. But I I remember choosing to see John Edwards over uh, Barack Obama when you could yeah, go to the, the small the, break. The, right. The, the bloggers were like a constituency in the right. net roots, and it was this idea. Yeah, it was this whole. It's, it's right. It's sort of it's hard to get your head back into that place, actually, and like explain to children of the 2010s what the hell we were doing. Do you think that Bernie Sanders? I mean, I because I look back at that era, and I was friends and kind of like political allies with so many people who now I disagree with, and they disagree with me. Uh, do you think Bernie, the emergence of Bernie Sanders, kind of created a new media divide? Because it used to be Republicans versus Democrats, and it was kind of Hillary versus Obama. And then it turned into kind of an Obama slash Hillary on the same side in some ways versus Bernie. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, Howard Dean was the first Democrat to really channel this energy. And he was in some ways, he was a populist, but at a moment when populism really met opposition to the Iraq war right? and Obama. And the reason that Obama was able to pick up that torch, even though he was a very different character than Dean and, and, you know, not that Dean was really an outsider or a radical. He was just actually opposed to the Iraq War and willing to say it. But Obama picked up that energy because the anti-war movement was was the you know was the most important thing happening on the left. And so you could argue, you know, maybe you didn't like his fondness for Tim Geithner, but the thing you cared about was the war. And then I guess I would say like by the time the Sander you know, 2016, social media has swallowed the blogosphere. You know, millions of people, and it's not—it's no longer just like you and your friends and me and my friends at Netroots Nation. It's a huge war. It's basically everyone in the entire country is on social media, and so, which, and I do think that social media and these kind of dynamics around traffic that I write about and around the impulse just to chase traffic and chase the energy, obviously favored Bernie over Clinton. Like she, he was where the energy was and where young people were, and but I think it was it was such a different ecosystem by then. It's sort of hard to compare. I mean. Yeah. You know, Sanders, it's not like Sanders wasn't around. He's been around the whole time. One thing I was reminded by, by your book I had forgotten, uh, is that Andrew, Byte, uh, Andrew Breitbart, the late founder of uh, Breitbart.com, sort of the, the face of the new right on the internet, uh, he was a co-founder of the Huffington Post. And yeah. uh, you relay in your book to this anecdote where you meet with Steve Bannon around the time of the 2016 election. And it seemed to me that Steve Bannon has a really strong interest in that kind of like you know viral media space happening more on, on the liberal side, and even seems to have been I don't know inspired by it, or at least drawn a lot of lessons from it. Yeah, I mean, I think again, it's it's just another one of these things where 
it's sort of it feels like a million years ago and, and to go and it was so interesting to go back into that world but where basically left-wing bloggers and right-wing bloggers had more in common with each other than they did with like anybody else and so there were all these odd alliances between for instance right ariana huffington and andrew breitbart and if you're trying to start a left-wing rival to the drudge report totally makes sense to hire drudge's deputy to do it very hard to sort of put yourself in that remember that that was what it was like but in fact there were kind of you know people who kind of created the right-wing internet all over the place in those early days and and people who not just the right-wing internet, people who wound up in very extreme places i mean the founder of 4chan who's not not an extremist himself you know worked out of buzzfeed's offices Gavin McInnes, who co-founded the Proud Boys, also co-founded Vice. Um, and Bannon was hanging around and super interested in that stuff. I think he has a story about basically looking over Jonah Peretti's shoulder at Huffington Post in the early days to sort of get to understand how traffic worked. And then he was the chairman of Breitbart News. And when Breitbart died, he took Breitbart in this like direction of just, just following the traffic toward, in particular, hostility to immigration, which is where the energy was in that community, and toward Donald Trump without any real regard for like, well, we should be fair to other candidates or portray other perspectives on issues. Like, no, just follow the sort of digital energy. And when I met him in 2016, he was just totally perplexed that BuzzFeed had not done the same with Bernie Sanders. Like that was his big question. Like, why didn't you just follow the clicks and the traffic into kind of all in support for Bernie Sanders? Why didn't they? Because we wanted to be fair and tell the truth. Right. Which is to say, like, here's, you know, here's some true facts about Bernie Sanders. Here's some true facts about Hillary Clinton. Make up your mind where Trump had, you know, where Breitbart had just turned into a cheerleading section for Donald Trump and committed itself to to the destruction of his enemies. It's a different approach to journalism. Well, speaking of Breitbart and left and right bloggers coming together, I have to, in full disclosure, show this photo of uh, yours truly and Andrew Breitbart at Netroots Nation. You can see he looks a little tipsy, but if you just scroll down, I got my photo taken with him as a joke. I mean, I got my photo taken with Herman Cain. I got my photo taken with uh, Sean Hannity, people like that. But it was funny because uh, it was actually I was walking around with Amanda Marcotte at the time, if you can believe it. And they sure. recognized her. So then they stopped like taking photos with us. But uh, that was just a, an interesting, I think they had their own right wing conference to to kind of like, so they could lurk at the Networks Nation conference. Yeah, but there's this real cross pollination that's now kind of unthinkable. Mm. But does that also speak to a lack of ideology? Like, does, what, does that say something about Ariana Huffington and Andrew Breitbart? Does that kind of undermine their ideological? Well, I think I think that they were, no, I mean, I think the thing they shared was this sort of hostility to establishment media and and like the kind of, yeah, this sort of outsidery attempt to overthrow the establishment, right? And the establishment media. And now I think that all of that has kind of blurred, right? But um, in the moment it's totally passed. So let me ask you about um, a new development uh, in the never-ending Russia uh, saga. We just got this uh, report from John Durham, who's been looking at the origins of the Trump-Russia investigation for, I don't know, four years now, I think it took for him to complete this. Uh, Durham's conclusion happens to align with mine, which is that this Trump-Russia investigation was baseless, should never have been launched. And BuzzFeed has a has a really big role in this story because BuzzFeed uh, News, under your leadership, published the Steele dossier. And when that happened... I feel like that took the story to a whole new level. And uh, in your book, you defend this decision because, you know, the dossier was newsworthy. 
I agree with you. I, I do think it was worth publishing. Um, and of course, you can't control the the consequences of doing that. And and BuzzFeed did say at the time that you weren't making a determination on whether or not the contents of the sealed essay were accurate. But I'm wondering now, as you look back now, I mean, my experience during that time as someone who was very critical of the whole Trump-Russia narrative, uh, I felt as if there was a real push to advance the underlying conspiracy theory that Trump and Russia were in cahoots. Uh, and I, f I saw so many of my media colleagues go along with that. And I felt, you know, those of us voices who were skeptical of were basically pushed to the side. As you look back now, do you think that, you know, you as an editor of a, of a major publication in the, you know, liberal media space, do you think that you were prone to that pressure to go along to feed into the story that there was something to Trump and Russia? I mean, I think everybody is prone to all sorts of pressures in terms of telling their audiences what they want to hear. Like that's the great temptation of media and digital media allows you to see it so clearly. I'm actually pretty, I mean, I think that, and I think broadly, like I disagree with a lot of where you wound up, but I also think broad, the, the, the sort of core critique that like, that, that a lot of Trump's enemies were driving this idea that he was a Russian spy, which was unfounded. Like, I agree with that. Um, I mean, we, we, one thing, it's interesting. We did a lot of work then that I'm really proud of. For instance, we published this right after the Cambridge Analytica story broke. I signed like great investigative reporter to like, like it had broken in the, in the German language, Swiss media first. And so I was, and I had gotten the copy of the story. I was like, let's get ahead of this. I signed this great reporter to get to the bottom of it. She came back in two weeks and said, total nonsense. There's nothing here. These people are con artists who yeah. are making all these claims that aren't true about what they yeah. did for Trump. And we, and we published that story and no one cared, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, and we also, the other thing that I remember from that moment was Louise Mensch was going around making wild claims <laughs> and we published a story that just listed how many people she'd been accused she'd accused of being russian agents which actually was enough for a lot of people to be like oh wait a second about this lady that's a lot of russian agents so i, I mean i think I, I basically think this is a very complicated story and nobody wants to hear the actual story now which is like it was really messy the russians tried to help trump wiki they helped a lot with wikileaks the they tried they tried to help with social media and in retrospect it didn't actually do much, but they, but but they, but it also wasn't crazy for people, for journalists to think like, wait, why are they doing that? What's going on? And then the answers in like the most Trumpy way are like weird and unsatisfying. Like he was trying to build an apartment building in Moscow is one of the answers. He was trying to build a, an apartment building in Moscow, but again, I think that story got overblown. And I do think, I mean, you might remember we sparred about this a little bit at the time. Um, I think Buzzfeed you know, was a part of that putting forward a deceptive narrative because Buzzfeed put out that story. It was very consequential that Trump had Which directed story? the Trump oh. had directed Michael Cohen to lie to Congress about his plans to build Trump Tower in Moscow. And that led Mueller you know, the, oh, the funny second. thing. Yeah. That one second. That led Mueller to release a very rare statement saying the story was not true. And ultimately the Mueller report found that it wasn't true that Cohen was not told by Trump to lie about that. Um and I, you know, well, I'm glad. The, I'm glad that I'm, itself, um, your reference for Robert Mueller and, and, is and, and, impressive. And just, just the 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 story, like he he signed some deal to put his name basically on a property in in Moscow, but the but the deal itself never got anywhere. And to me, it actually underscored how little there was to the Trump Russia story because the the Trump team had no contacts in Russia to the point where Cohen 
called up the Kremlin asking for help, and they basically told him, "Sorry, we can't do much for you here." Um, so anyway, but that at the time was a huge story, and it was fueling talk of impeachment. Anyway, but you still stand by that story? If I, if I, if I, yeah, had. I mean, I think I, I'm not. It's been a couple of years. And I think I don't want to argue the yeah. micro details with it of it with right. you, but yeah, I mean, I, I think. I'm surprised that you're still lighting the votive Robert Mueller candle over there and didn't realize that was your uh, thing. But actually, to me, one of the big shocks at that moment was how the entire, you know, a federal prosecutor contests the story with no evidence. And and the entire media, apparently including you, is like, well, we're with Robert Mueller. We don't need to check the details. And Would you agree that the Steele dossier was a hoax? I mean, a hoax. Well, so you think that Christopher Steele knew it to be false, knew it all to be false? I don't know what's in his head, but and he could have just. I mean, and oh no, but that's important. A hoax does require like intent. Well, there's a scam. I actually think that someone's committing a scam. It's someone's committing a scam. And to hear the rest of the interview, please go to usefulidiots.substack.com. Well, that was fun, Katie. I think it looks like you really enjoyed the interview. It was sort of a trip down memory lane. It was a trip down memory lane. Yeah, I was kept remembering things that I'd forgotten about when I when I was reading it. Um, like we used, to, I used to blog at Huffington Post. It was such a funny thing. She got all these people to write for free, but when you're like either have a lot of money, you know, and like our famous person, you know, like Larry David, I'm sure was happy to write a, a thing about why he was supporting George Bush, which was satirical, obviously. And I used to do, I used to write in a kind of Stephen Colbert like pseudo conservative voice there and i was just starting out so i was happy to do it for free just to get featured those were the days those were the, those days, were the yeah. days yeah i remember gawker and it was it was fun it was funny i mean you know it was obviously it got a little bit too much like going into people's private lives and caring so much about media personalities that really not that really were not that interesting at least to me but uh it was a funny time and it was kind of um it's it's it was it was fun for me too to reminisce a little bit and see how things have changed and I, I'm personally very happy with how things have changed like yeah. for me personally as a young lefty journalist assessing my career prospects back then I didn't see much of a lane for me and uh, in this new era where just you know so much of media now is about finding your audience and having your audience support you it's uh it's a whole new ball game so I'm very happy to not be in the era that we're in right. but also you know a lot of people now are, it means that for some of these like, you know, established outlets like BuzzFeed and Vice News, a lot of people are losing their jobs and that's sad. And right. It, you know, yeah. We don't want that. It's, that's not a good It's part a time of, it, of yeah. transition. Yeah. But I'm, I'm definitely embarrassed when I look back on some of the stuff I was doing. Like I was just such a cheerleader for Obama because I really <laughs> disliked Hillary Clinton. I thought he was better than her. I never yeah. thought, I was never like a true believer. I, I didn't believe he was going to be particularly good. I just thought he was going to be better than Clinton. But I definitely spent a lot of time like defending him from racism, which should not have been the focus of like critical journalists. We should have just covered, I mean, you could do that in a sentence and then cover his policies. Right. I mean, the problem is he had no policies. And uh, because he was running against Hillary Clinton and everything she represented, it was such an easy sell right. to people like us. I, I had the same thing where I definitely yeah. drank some of the Obama Kool-Aid. And it's pretty embarrassing looking back. I, I've scrubbed my social media of a lot of things I I said. Uh, oh, wow. I haven't. Yeah, I probably oh, yeah. sh I yeah. should have. Yeah. I should have. But it was, yeah. you know, when I really started, I was kind of like, I don't really like either of them. And then when Hillary went after him for his um, Jeremiah Wright uh, preacher, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I liked that him. That made him cool. 
that made him cool. Yeah. yeah. Jeremy Wright was awesome. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, that's one of the main reasons I, I remember thinking this guy could be cool because, oh, you know, if that's his preacher, someone who's so, you know, such a, you know, Truth staunch killer. critic of militarism. Right. And uh, oppression. Great. You know, right. that made him cool then to he, me. Then he threw him under the bus. Yeah, he did. Of course he did. Yeah. yeah. And of course, I remain on my eternal quest for Russiagate justice. Uh, right. Getting someone who, you know, bought into what I think is a false narrative to apologize and to recognize that myself and Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi and that we were right and they were wrong. And of course, that justice still eludes me, but I, I will have justice one day. I will wow. not abandon this story, this quest. But if you want to see Aaron try to get that justice, make sure you subscribe to uh, usefulidiots.substack.com. You'll see a little back and forth between him and Ben. And also you'll get a little scoop about uh, what Ben describes as the clusterfuck at the New York Times around the podcast Caliphate. That's right. All right. Usefulidiots.substack.com or usefulidiots.locals.com. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Hello, thank you so much for listening to and watching Useful Idiots. For full episodes and extended interviews, please subscribe at usefulidiots.substack.com. You can subscribe on YouTube at youtube.com slash usefulidiots for clips, live streams, and full episodes. Also, subscribe to us wherever you find your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at usefulidiotpod and use the hashtag usefulidiotspod. Join us Mondays at 10 a.m. for the Useful Idiots Monday Morning Show, where we discuss the Sunday morning news shows so you don't have to watch them.